Well, last Sunday, we were challenged to climb a mountain together. And Josh Lewis took us down the trail of Genesis 1.27. And he unpacked for us very clearly how we were made in God's image and in His likeness. And that's a lofty peak to climb in and of itself. But he didn't stop there because he took us to the ultimate pinnacle of the mountain. And that was to a place to where we could observe why it is that we are here. Yes, how did we get here? We are here by God's plan and God's creation. But why did God make us in His image? And we heard at the peak of that mountain so that we could worship Him, honor Him, glorify Him. And we do that most vividly when we fully appreciate His grace. We serve and worship and pray to and sing to and preach a gracious God. That's the sweetest thing about Him is His grace. And we saw some some ways in which this grace is made manifest to us. And, And that is that God planned His grace to be revealed to us before the foundation of the world. It's who He is. It's, it's who He, he was uh, wanting us to understand Him to be like before He even made us. He said, I want to display my grace in the heavens and on earth and in the people that bear my image. It's a big driver of God and His existence. And we see that this grace was ultimately made manifest to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, took on flesh and served as a man and died a death, even a death on a cross. And that grace was most evident in that death where he died as a substitute for you and me. For our sins, because he committed no sin, but he was made to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. And then we see that there is grace in the fact that we are given through this son who died on a cross, eternal life. And we saw that verse Revelation 5.11, I believe it is, where we will acknowledge the worthiness of the Lamb and proclaim the grace of God in Jesus Christ for all of eternity. That's the mountain that we climbed last Sunday. Today we're going to climb another mountain. It's a different peak. It's just to the right or just to the left of that mountain, and I think it's just as high and lofty because today I want us to look at Why, not do we exist as individuals, why does the church exist? Why church? And how do we accomplish what God designed the church to be? So why did God make the church and how do we do what God intended for us to do so that He is honored and glorified? And our text for this morning is going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Yes, we are going to leave 1 Peter for a second week. Because we need to build upon what was established last week. This is not due to some grand plan. As I considered this last week where we went last Sunday, this was a natural place for us to go. So we're going to go here this morning. Why church and how do we do church in a way that God is honored and He intended? So First Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 specifically. And we're even going to peek a little bit at verse 16. So turn there with me if you will. And here's what Paul writes. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is an elder, a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And these are specific instructions to Timothy, one of his shepherds, on how he is to to conduct himself and how his congregation is to conduct themselves in this thing that God calls church. And here's what he says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's just pause right there. This this passage, verses 14 and 15, almost, it is almost seated in the geographic middle of 1 Timothy. And it's almost like Paul comes up for a breath of air. He's been giving some weighty instructions to Timothy up to this point. Heavy stuff that we're going to look at in just a moment. 
But it's almost like he comes up for air and says, hey, I'm writing these things so that you know how you ought to behave in the household of God. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I have preached on this passage. I did last summer, last spring of of 2013. But we're not going to redo that sermon, but we're going to look at three key points that we need to understand here before we move on to the the main point of this sermon. And that is that we have here three key points in this verse that we need to absolutely understand before we continue. Number one, the church is called by God His household. We are We are getting these instructions from Paul so that we know how to behave in the household of God. He does not say house. Okay? He's not talking about a structure. He's talking about a family. That's what a household is. So it's not an address. It's not a geography. It's not a building. It's not a room. It's a a family concept. We are given instructions here to know how to behave together under the leadership of our Father in heaven. And here's, here's how we become members of this family. Look at verse 16 with me. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And here's the confession that we make to become a member of this household, this family. And look at it. It's in verse 16. We confess that He, this is Jesus Christ, He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. You have here the incarnation of Christ through a virgin birth, the walking of a perfect sinless life, the death on a cross, the vindication by the Spirit in a resurrection. He was seen by many witnesses. He was believed upon by many in the world, even to this day. And He was taken up in glory. And we know that He's going to come back again from glory. And He's going to take us to glory. So you have there a nice, compact picture. It's, it's implied in different ways. You've got a nice, compact verse there of the gospel. We make a confession. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is at the center of everything that we believe. Manifested, vindicated, resurrected, believed upon, and taken up in glory. That is what brings us together and injects us into this thing that we call the household of God. That's what we're supposed to be about. Making that confession. Yes to one another. We remind one another of this confession every time we gather But yes, to the lost world that doesn't know that confession, that they might make that confession and that they might become part of the household of God. So that's the first thing that we need to understand about the church. It is God's household. And he is the head of the household. Am I right? Number two. Paul says, not only are we the household of God... But he gives it further definition and he says, the church of the living God. Our God is not dead, right? He is alive and well. And last time I preached on this passage, we looked at verse after verse through especially the book of Hebrews where God is called the living God. You might want to search that this afternoon on your own. But let me give you a real precise translation of this phrase, the church of the living God. The most precise way to translate that is the living God's church. Now, why am I making a big deal out of that? This church is not my church. This church is not the elders' church. This church is not your church. This church belongs to the living God. It doesn't belong to you or me. You want to see a church get really wrecked, it starts becoming about people. Pastors, elders, deacons, members. And, And if that's what we're about, train wrecks waiting to happen. I promise you. This church belongs to God's, the living God's. He has assembled it. 
He has called it into existence. He sustains her. He washes her. And he keeps her. And I dare say sometimes he lets churches go. Do you realize that the church in Ephesus that Timothy was a pastor in no longer exists today? Talked to the youth about this this morning in Sunday school. The church in Philippi, gone. Colossae, gone. Corinth, gone. You can't find these churches today. So it's not about geography, is it? It's about a collection of people that call God Father. That's the church. And we are the church of the living God, the living God's church. And so God has authority over His church because it's His. Yet, we are called to behave in certain ways. And that's where we're going here in a minute. So this church is God's church. Even this local manifestation of it is a collection of people that God has assembled. And I want to take you back to, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, maybe even five or six weeks ago, when I preached out of 1 Peter this verse. As you come to Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Do you remember this? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have here a verse in 1 Peter where God has a cornerstone that He set. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, although it was good. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone, and we are living stones from this living God that He is placing into this structure. So God is the builder. This takes the church from a mere human institution to an entity that God ordained and built and is building. We also looked at Ephesians chapter 2. 19 through 22, and I love how that verse complements the first Peter passage. Listen to Paul. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Same language as he uses in first Timothy. We are members of the household of God. And listen to this built on the foundations of the apostles And the prophets, do you remember this? This is our foundation. And this foundation is set upon a cornerstone whose name is Jesus Christ. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is the living God's church also known as the household of God, the family of God. And then thirdly, the third truth that we've got to get to is this phrase, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar, we've looked at this before, denotes strength and permanence. The church at large, the household of God, is permanent. And it is strong. We're not talking about physical here, geographic. We're talking about the body of believers, the household of God. It is permanent. And it is strong. And it endures for the long haul. And by the way, the long haul is called eternity. Church will never be snuffed out. How about the word buttress? A pillar and buttress of the truth. A buttress is is a foundation word. The church is to be a foundation of the truth. Even This word even connotes protection. We are to protect the truth. And then look at the word truth. That's just another word for the word gospel. So we as a pillar and buttress of the truth are to be strong support for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That proclamation in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3. So if you take these definitions and this calling, this purpose, why do we exist and, and, and why did God make the church? We are to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth. And that, folks, is a gigantic phrase. We cannot take that phrase lightly. There is huge responsibility. 
This picture of the church should impress us. This is not a social club with people that have common interests. We have a common interest. His name is Jesus Christ. And we are to uphold Him. We are to be a pillar and a buttress to Him in this world that's raging against Him. Jesus is with the disciples, Matthew 16. And He says to His disciples, He asks them, Who do people say that I am? You know this. We've talked about this passage often. Oh, some say you're Moses. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. Okay, great, guys. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter. Well, you're the son of the living God. You're Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Here's this living God phrase again. And Jesus' response is, oh, you're right, Peter, but flesh and bone didn't reveal that to you. My Father who is in heaven told you that truth. And then he says this, you are Peter. And on this rock, and we've talked about this, this rock is this profession that you are Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. On this rock, this profession I will build my church, not your church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Wow. What do you do with that verse? We've done some things with that verse. What that verse means is, by implication, the gates of hell are going to try to prevail against the church. Right? And Jesus says they won't win. But we can get from that very clearly. There will be attempts to destroy you. And you will stand because you're my church. And you're founded upon a profession of me. That I am the son of the living God. So we see right there. When Jesus says, I will build my church. And by the way, Jesus Christ is the living God. Right? I will build my church on a profession of truth. And now Paul comes to Timothy in the church in Ephesus and says, you need to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. So we are here at a key point in our church's history as we're looking at calling a man and his family to join our staff as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an overseer. And we've got to make certain that the next move we make as a congregation is a move that strengthens us, doesn't keep us the same, strengthens us in fulfilling our purpose of being a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's what's happening. And this is a significant moment in the history of our church. It's not every day that we do this, and we pray that we don't do it often. Let's be honest. Stability in pastoral staff positions is nice. I want to tell you what happened on Friday, September the 12th, 1884. Does anybody know what happened on that day? Friday, or it was actually a Sunday in 1884. Sunday, September 12th, 1884. A place called Rocky Point Missionary Baptist da 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 church met at this location for the very first time. So Friday, two days ago, was the 130th anniversary of our church. You didn't know that, did you? We have a church historian in our midst, Wanda Hook, called me on Friday. To remind me of that, and I love you for doing that. You ever want to know anything about the history of Rocky Point? She's your lady. She lives right on the hilltop, right after you, right before you go around the curve. She would love to open out her books. I've spent some time with her looking at these books of church history here at Rocky Point, and it is fascinating. And what God started 130 years ago is still happening. And I don't know. And she doesn't know. She's been with us since 1956. 
Her husband Preston, 1939, he was baptized. His mom and dad were here probably in the 1800s. Okay? We don't know everything that happened in all those decades. And I dare say, let's, let's be honest, 130 years, human beings involved. This church probably had some good moments and some bad moments as far as being a pillar and buttress to the truth. Safe to say? We've probably had some strong times in those seasons and some not so strong, some weak, maybe even some bad times during those 130 years. But God has called us to be here at year 130. And some of us to be shepherds and pastors, and some of us to be deacons, and some of us to be Sunday school teachers, and some of us to be church workers and volunteers, and some of us to be visiting, and some of us to be joining. Because he continues to provide for his household, to assemble his household, to take living stones and install them in certain places on this foundation that's built on the apostles and the prophets that are set on the cornerstone Jesus Christ. This is the living God's local manifestation of his worldwide church. And so we have here a responsibility as members and leaders of this church in this age to fulfill our purpose. And that is to be God's household. That is to acknowledge that we belong to the living God and this is his church. And that we are to function in such a way that we are a pillar and a buttress to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so if you look now at the book of First Timothy, and we're going to go pretty quick, do not worry, but I'm going to preach to you the entire book of First Timothy here now. Because here's how, here's how Timothy instructs the church in Ephesus through the leadership of... Uh, Paul instructs the church in Ephesus through the leadership of Timothy. Here's, here's how they are to conduct. Because right here in the geographic center of the book, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in this thing called church. So the question is, how must we behave? And we're going to just survey this book to see exactly what God had Paul write to Timothy in the church in Ephesus. And I have seven key behaviors. Now, I do not say that this is everything a church needs to be be doing and nothing else. There are other things that we need to be about, but this church in Ephesus had some very specific instructions that Paul gave to them. And here's the first one. We're going to have seven. I encourage you to just write these titles down and maybe even the scripture references. The first one, interestingly enough, and it's interesting to watch the order, The first one is that we are to behave in such a way that we guard against false teaching. You're going to see that the two most prominent behaviors that we are to have as a church is to protect and and proclaim and guard against the defaming of the truth. The first thing out of Paul's mouth in verse 3 talks about watching out for false teachers. He says, as I urged you, 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Don't you just hear that? That's, that says you need to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth, doesn't it? And anybody that comes amongst you that does this, teaches different doctrines from the apostles and the prophets, the foundation, no, you need to charge them not to do that. One of the key qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, able to teach... And if you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 2, 1, after he says over there, able to teach, he then starts talking about refuting false teachers. So being able to teach is being able to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth when those that would come in would attack it and disparage it. And so we are to guard against false teaching. Look down in verse 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Y'all, 
we as the stewards of Rocky Point Baptist Church in 2014, year 130, we are supposed to be guarding against people that might come in and speak confidently and make confident assertions that contradict the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone Jesus Christ. And churches are infiltrated all the time by people that come in and make confident assertions that can't be found in the Bible. And and let me tell you, I stand up here week in and week out and I make confident assertions. Oh, I do. And I pray that you can see that every one of them that I make is backed up right here. I'm confident that this is the Word of God. And I will assert from this to you boldly. And you got to make sure that I'm right in line with what's being said here with these apostles and prophets. So it's not just confident assertions. It's confident assertions that contradict the apostles and the prophets. We are to guard against that. Look down in verse 18 and 20 of chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. We're to fight. That's pillar and buttress language. We're to fight for the truth. We're going to wage good warfare, holding faith and as a good and having a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may not may learn not to blaspheme. I don't even want to talk about that right now. We can get to that passage someday in the future. But we are to guard against false teachers who make shipwreck of their faith and therefore the shipwreck of many people's faith. That's a massive charge here. That's number one. Number two goes right with it. It complements it well. We are to teach the truth. So first, we are to guard against false teachers. Second, we are to be true teachers. Look in chapter 4, verses uh, 7 and 8. Chapter 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Eternity is at stake, y'all, with what we teach and what we ingest and what we apply to our lives and what we live out. Eternity is at stake. And we are to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. We are to teach this and only this. Verse 13. Let no one, I'm sorry, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's what we're to do. That is a very specific behavior that Paul's given us. Look down in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How? By keeping a close watch on the teaching. What do we teach? The truth. Because we are to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So right out of the gate, the primary things that we are to be about as a church are guarding against false teaching and proclaiming right and accurate teaching. The last verse I would give you on this is over in verse 20 of chapter 6, how he closes his letter. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Y'all, there's churches full of guys doing that. Full of them. May we never be one of these. May we never teach contradictions that we falsely call knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. May we never, may we never swerve from the faith. May God grant us another 130 years where we just hone in on the faith more and more 
and more. That we become a stronger, more solidified pillar of the truth. A more comprehensive and unshakable foundation, buttress of the truth. I want to challenge you to have this kind of mind every time you come to this property. Every time you meet with us in town, we're having church there, right? But we do gather here on Sunday mornings and nights and Wednesday nights. Okay? Let's have a a bigger mentality about what we're about. So many churches shrink back into a social organization mentality. There's bigger things going on here. Eternity is at stake every time we gather. So there's the first two. Guard against false teaching, and we are to teach the truth. And that is predominantly what 1 Timothy is all about. These others that I'm going to give you, there's there's smaller verses to look at. The third thing that we are to do is we are to be a people of prayer. Look with me in uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We are to be a people of prayer, and we need to be praying the truth. First of all, then, 1 Timothy 2, 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's you and me. That's the lost world that we're going to go encounter this afternoon, next week. We're to be praying for all people. And look at this in verse 2. This is going to sound familiar from a couple of sermons ago in our First Peter series. For kings, right? The emperor, remember Peter? Honor the emperor. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. These are conduct. These are behaviors that we are to be about as a church. This is good, Paul says, and it is pleasing in the sight of God. Our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, the truth, the truth, a pillar and buttress of the truth. God doesn't desire that anybody in that town that doesn't believe in Him right now would perish. And he wants us to be the pillar and the foundation that takes the truth to them so that they can be added amongst us to the household of God. This is what church is about. This is how we ought to behave as the household of God. Look at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up Holy hands without anger are quarreling. No place for a church that prays for herself and her people and for the lost. There is no place to be raising holy hands and quarreling and having anger towards one another. There's no place for it. It does not fit. It is a contradiction, and you cannot do both. I will tell you that where there is quarreling and anger, there is no prayer. It is not happening. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I can also tell you that where there is much prayer, much lifting up of holy hands, men engaged in prayer, women too, When that's happening, there's no quarreling and there's no anger. You cannot do both of those or do neither of those and have one or the other. We've got to take church seriously. We're called to be a pillar and a buttress to the truth. And to not be doing that is a contradiction to our calling. Climbing a big tall mountain here today. It's a lofty view of church. We need a loftier view of church. Josh gave us a lofty view of mankind and who we are and who God is, who we're supposed to be in relation to Him. I want to give a lofty view today of who the church is and who God is and how we are to relate to God in the world that we live in. Do not look at this place as a civic club. And don't let one ounce of you go there. This is much bigger Eternity is at stake in our gatherings. Now let's look at uh, the next one, the fourth one. 1 Timothy 3. 
we are to be ultra careful in selecting leadership in our church. And in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, we are to be ultra careful in selecting overseers or bishops or elders or pastors. Those are all synonyms. They all mean the same thing. We're to be very, very careful to select qualified men so that these men can be contributors to and leaders of us being a pillar and a buttress to the truth. We're not going to read all of those. You can read those. You've been given a list with those. There's still some more handouts out on the counter. They're also on our website under the members section. You need to be reviewing these qualifications for overseer, bishop, elder, pastor this week as you pray and ask the God, ask the Lord to show us what we should do with Josh Lewis and his family and this calling to our congregation. Those are the qualifiers. Those are the things that we need to see evidenced in this man's life. But we get deacon qualifications as well in verses 8 through 13. We've got to be ultra careful in who we call amongst us to be deacons. These are the two offices that God has established in the church. And if we don't get our deacons right, if we don't get our deacons right and we don't get our elders right, we will not be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Will we? How in the world can you be right if your leadership's wrong? How can a family be right if dad's wrong? If dad's not right with God, the family's going to have a hard time being right with God. The mom as well. We've got to get this right when we select people to come in our midst and lead us on behalf of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Number five, we are to respect and honor one another within the church. Look in 1 Timothy 5. And just real quick, verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. We are to love on one another and honor one another, not tear one another down, not slander one another, not be malicious towards one another, no gossip, nothing but uplifting speech to one another day in and day out. So we're to relate rightly to one another. How about verse 3 of chapter 5? Honor widows who are truly widows. We are to take care of those amongst us that are widows. We are to honor them in a multitude of ways. How about, uh, <clears throat> how about look down in verse 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's to be Honor that's extended to one another, to widows, yes, to elders. And how about employers? Look, at, look in chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves, that's employment language in our day and age, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So we are to be a people in all of our key relationships within the church that bestow honor. And if we're not honor-giving people, to the king, to the boss, to the spouse, to the widow, to the pastor, to the deacons. If we're not people that are extending honor to these people, we're not being a pillar and a buttress to the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that anything goes and whatever the elders do, we've got to honor them. There might be something an elder does that's dishonorable and it needs to be confronted. We'll see that here in just a moment. Um, in fact, let's just go there right now. Look at verse uh, uh, 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a pastor elder, not an elderly person. As for those who persist in sin, this is speaking about an elder, a shepherd, a pastor. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear so that you may stand in fear when an elder is rebuked in public if he persists in sin. Now, don't wage a charge against him without two or three witnesses and go to him in private, Matthew 18, trying to seek correction there. But if he persists in sin, 
Rebuke him in front of the presence of all so that all will be warned. Don't act like this guy that's called shepherd in this church. Do you see this? There's a pillar and buttress concept behind that. If the leaders are not worthy, the church will not be worthy. That's an interesting text to preach as an elder. And I'm not going to shrink back from it. You need to evaluate my life, my character, my speech, my actions. You need to take that list that we gave you that's on the website, that's out there in that lobby right now, and you need to say, do I see evidence of these qualifications in Edward? And if I don't, I need to go to him. I don't need to plaster him, plaster all over the, the, the city that he's such and such. No, I need to go to him with the desire to restore him or to get clarification. And then I need to pray fervently that Edward will embody all of these qualifications day in and day out. And there's five other men with me that you need to be praying that for. And we do invite you, look at us. Maybe, maybe a bigger, don't, don't get microscopic, but look at us. Look at us and come to us. We are trying to lead this church to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth. So look at us to see if we're doing this right. And then imitate us so much as we imitate Christ. So much as we embody these qualifications. Do the same thing with our deacon body. And go to a deacon that's not upholding the qualifications in private with a witness or two. Say, brother, come here. We need you to step up. We're trying to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth. And we need you to be this for us. As overseers, deacons and elders, we must invite this. Must. Or this church will falter. And some might swerve from the faith. May no one ever swerve from the faith by the actions of the elders of this church. By the words of the elders of this church. By the teaching and preaching of the elders in this church. By the serving of the deacons in this church. May no deacon serve in such a way that it causes someone to swerve away from the truth. We live in serious times. They've been serious since Genesis 3. They've been deadly serious with eternal consequences since Genesis 3. There's never been a non-urgent time in human history. Maybe right before they ate. Wasn't that urgent. But it got real urgent in the fall. And I'm telling you, I represent six elders who say, we get it. We live in urgent times right now. We must be a pillar and a buttress for the truth of Jesus Christ until he comes again from glory. Two more. In chapter 6, starting in verse 6, we are to be a people who are content. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered, like swerved, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You don't want an elder that's in it for the money, a pastor that's in it for the money. He will make decisions that are polluted that will sacrifice the strength of this pillar and buttress that we're supposed to be. And you as a member of this church cannot love money because you have to join the elders and the deacons and everybody else in contributing to us being a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And if you love money, it means you've replaced the desire for truth with money. You will be a weak link in the pillar. We're to behave like this together. Last one. We are to fight to be godly and righteous in Christ. Look with me in verse 11 there of chapter 6. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And that was the love of money, the, these things. Pursue righteousness 
Pursue godliness. Pursue faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made. The good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What's that confession? Chapter 3.16. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. And taken up in glory. That's the confession that's been made. And eternal life comes from embracing and making and believing that confession. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to keep the truth free from reproach. What's the first qualification of an elder? 1 Timothy 3.1, he must be above reproach. We must keep the truth free from reproach. And that's a charge to all of us. That's a charge to all of us. So we are to guard against false teaching. We are to teach the truth. We are to pray for people. We are to be careful in the selection of leadership. We are to respect and honor one another within the church. We are to be content with what God provides us. And we are to fight, fight, fight for righteousness until Christ returns again. That is a summary of Paul's instructions to Timothy on how one ought to behave in the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what that book's about. We just did it. It is essential that we pay close attention to our behavior. It's essential. We cannot be casual in our behavior as a church. doesn't mean we don't have fun. God is a, a God that wants us to delight in Him and delight in worship, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying we want to be a, a stoic, stodgy church, but we have got to be serious. When we function as a church, and we function as a church here and in town and at home, and we even function as a church independently and privately. And so everything that we do, and I'll bring it back out to the confines of what we do as a church, everything that we do, we must ask ourselves, does this promote the gospel? This is the acid test for everything that we do. Everything that we do. Does it promote the gospel and does it protect the gospel? Can, can anything that we're doing cause someone to swerve from the faith? Can anything we do cause someone to wander away from the prophets and the apostles' teachings? And if there's any chance that it can, we do not need to do it. Cut it. And we ask this question even as we call men and their families to come amongst us and to lead us as pastors. Or deacons. The church, as I said a moment ago, it's, it's not a collection of people with, with common interests or common problems or circumstances. It's, this, we have one thing in common. And that's Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, and resurrected. Glorified, coming again. We have that in common and that's all we need in common. From there, I pray that we have a ton of diversity in our midst. You know why? Because for all of eternity in heaven, there, there's going to be people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Right? There's going to be diversity in heaven, but unity on one thing. And that unity is on Jesus Christ. So we're not a group of people seeking help with, with addictions or wanting to feel spiritual or sentimental about Jesus together. Okay, We're not a group of people that want to have our social calendars filled with good, clean, moral fun, although that will happen as a result of being a member of our church. We, we don't want to be a people that gather and just go through meaningless religious rituals. No, we are the church 
of the living God. I want to say it another way. We are the living God's church. And a pillar and a buttress for the truth. So when we gather together with the confession of Christ at our core, we are the household of God. And we are fulfilling. When we profess that in, to one another and to the world at large, we are being what God made us to be, a pillar and a buttress for the truth. So I ask you to pray for God's church at Rocky Point. I ask you to pray for God's churches all over the land and the world. I, pray, I ask you to pray for God's collective universal church that all Christians would be functioning together as a pillar and a buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. And God has given you a very specific calling in this local manifestation of the body of Christ, the household of God, to contribute everything you possibly can to make sure that we are fulfilling what we were created to do as a church. And so that's going to deal first with your own personal thoughts in your heart. It's then going to deal with your actions that we can actually see. It's going to deal with your families. It's going to deal with your decisions as you seek the Lord on Josh coming on board. You, you need to have this as your filter that you're running everything through. And then when we make decisions and we start acting, you need to pray that our church would be fulfilling this function for which God created us to do. And we ought to be praying that until Christ comes again. So with that, I, I ask you now to bow with me and let's pray. Let's pray for our church. And here's what I'm going to do. Tyler, you don't know this. Keep coming. Let's enter into some time of prayer for our church. And, and that we would do everything that we just heard from Paul in his letter to Timothy. And let's pray for this decision that we are walking up to one Sunday from now, a week from right now, as we ask the Lord to confirm in our congregation this decision with Josh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. And then we're going to, I'm not going to say amen. We're going to continue praying. You can come to the front. You can stay right where you are. But let's, let's ask the Lord to enable us to become a church like this. And let's also, while we're at it, thank him for 130 years. Let's do that too. And ask for 130 more if it be his will. Father, we, we ask now that you would guide us in this time of worship. Because we are worshiping right now, you Lord. You'd guide us in worshiping you through prayer. Father, you told us here in 1 Timothy that we're to pray for all people. And that starts with one another, our elders, our deacons, all that serve in our church. And yes, this decision about Josh Lewis and bringing him into our, our fellowship. Father, these prayers are done with the goal of this church becoming a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So I ask now that you'd lead every heart and every tongue to pray accordingly in these next few moments.